Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. We've been in a sermon series for a couple weeks now called Who's in Charge? And we've been using this image of a car with two steering wheels because we've been talking about this concept of how every one of us has competing traits and competing desires that live inside of us. And so we started off this series with talking about gratitude and entitlement and how gratitude and entitlement are often kind of almost in conflict with one another. And we're wondering, you know, which one are we actually going to lean towards? Which one are we going to let win? Uh, and last week, we, we uh, talked about how do we manage our emotions, about not being a slave to our emotions and what we feel, but how do we recognize what our emotions are, and how do they reveal to us sometimes things about us that we're not recognizing, and how do we learn to manage it so that we don't just, you know, we don't want to suppress our emotions completely, but we don't want to be a slave to our emotions, that whatever we feel, we just act upon. And today we're continuing this series and we're talking about trust and worry. Uh, We're talking about how the fact that trust is greater than worry. And in fact, trust, sorry, worry is something that every one of us experiences. Everyone worries about something. You know, every one of us has, and maybe you can probably think of that thing if I ask you, you know, what's something you worry about? You probably have a list of a couple things in your head because this is part of of who we are. We, we tend to worry as people, whether we want to worry or not. And sometimes those worries, those thoughts, they consume us and we start to over plan. And do you ever have that where you like run through contingency after contingency, you run through like backup plan. Well, I'm going to do this. If that doesn't work, well, I'm going to do that. If that doesn't work, I'm going to do that. Like how many of you would say that some days you have like 50 steps ahead planned out And really, you might think, well, I'm just, I'm prepared. I'm a good Boy Scout. You know, be prepared. The Boy Scout model, you know, I I have that. But when that becomes so consuming, when we actually debilitate ourselves and prevent ourselves from acting because we have overplanned because of worry, that's a problem. That means we've gone too far with it. Sometimes, you know, maybe worry manifests in different ways. You know, when you lie down at at night and you put your head on the pillow and you just can't get your brain to stop turning. You just can't get your brain to stop thinking through either the events of the previous day or the events of coming up. Or maybe it's even like events coming up months from now that are just stressing you. See, worry has many different faces. Sometimes it comes out as stress. Sometimes it comes out as anxiety. And worry is at the root of those. But here's where we're getting at. Inside every worry is a piece of fear. Inside every worry that we have, there is something that we are fearful of. Now, sometimes those fears are rational. Um, and, you know, if you are hiking in the woods and you come across bear tracks and then suddenly there's a bear, you know, 30 feet from you, a fear response in that moment is normal. If you are completely unafraid and you're like, oh, look at the cute bear, I'm going to pet him, like, that's a problem. You know, those are the stories that, you know, we hear on the news. You know, they have this whole thing, the Darwin Award, like people that do things that remove themselves from the gene pool. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. See, c- coming across a bear is a rational fear in that moment. But if you are so fearful of coming across a bear that you're like, I'm never stepping foot out of the city. You know, I'm never going to go to a campground. I'm never going to go hiking because what if there's a bear? Like, that's when a fear has gone too far. See, some of our fears are realistic, but sometimes our fears are unrealistic. Sometimes our fears have been so blown out of portion. 
And we're so consumed by this fear that even whether or not the stimulus is close to us, we worry, we, cons- we make ourselves over-concerned about it. That's when our worries have gone too far. That's when our fears have gone too far. And so I want to talk about the causes of worry, and then we're going to talk about what do we do about them. And so the first cause of worry that often comes up is trying to control the uncontrollable. Maybe you're fearful that something will happen. Maybe it's, you know, a, an event coming up. Maybe there's a stressful, you know, work project or something that's due and you're, and you're fearful about it and you're trying to control the outcome. But we don't always control the outcomes of our events, do you? You know, um, as Nikki alluded to, uh, my brother and I, we, and my mom, we drove to uh, Lacombe, Alberta and back this week uh, to go to a family funeral. And as we were driving early on Thursday morning, you know, we're driving along and there's this, this, this small animal, we couldn't quite tell if it was a fox or coyote, darted across the road. And you know, it's small enough that I don't, I didn't swerve, I just, he's small enough, I hit him, I hit him. But I don't control when a wild animal runs in front of our vehicle. You know, how many people here have hit a deer with their car? You know, a lot of us have. You don't control that that deer is going to run out and jump at you. You don't. But if you try to control that deer, I don't know how, like get out and lasso, I, I don't know. But like, if we are so worried of every time we're driving, I'm going to hit a deer, I'm going to hit a deer, I'm going to hit a deer. Why? Because you're trying to control the uncontrollable. And when we try to control the uncontrollable, we're not going to have success at it. In fact, you know, we talked about this last week. We cannot control other people's actions. That's a good thing that we don't control other people's actions. And so when something happens in our lives, the only piece that we actually control is our own response. To no matter what it is, you still have the ability to choose what your response is. And see, when we have this this fear of, of loss of control, or when we have a desire that we want to control our world, we want to control everything around us, we have to make peace with that fact eventually that we don't control everything. In fact, the only pieces that we do control is we control our effort, how much effort we put into a situation. We control our priorities, you know, how what we put higher on the list of what we want to achieve, what we want to do, the relationships we want to maintain, pieces like that. And we control how we spend our free time. You know, oftentimes we don't really have, if you know, if you, when you work a job, you don't really have control of your time during that, but you have control of what you do and how you carry yourself when you're at work. So if your employer gets the hours from nine to five, you still control your attitude and your effort and your perspective to how you spend that nine to five every day. See, we have to, if we want to get rid of this worry over control, it means that we have to start thinking about that. See, we don't contr- you can control your effort, your priorities, how you spend your time, but you don't control if you'll succeed or if you fail. We can't guarantee that we're going to succeed. Now, any, all of you who hit a deer, you never got in the car that day with the intent to hit a deer, hopefully. You know, maybe you were driving an old beater and you know, that, the write-off would be nice. Hopefully that wasn't the case. I, I would have liked that a couple weeks ago before our transmission and transfer case and when all that went grenaded. Anyways, besides the point, we, don't, we can control our effort, but we don't always control our success and our failures. See, there will always be things that happen beyond our control, like the transfer case deciding to explode in our vehicle. Like, I couldn't control that it was going to do that or when it was going to do that. It just happened. And so what I control is my response. So yes, I was frustrated and mad at the car. And I mean, it's an inanimate object. Why am I mad at it? It's just a thing. It's metal. Like, what's the point? I feel good when I'm mad at it, right? 
you know, but that doesn't actually achieve anything. So one of the things we always have to deal with when we talk about this concept of success and failure and that we don't actually control the outcomes. Now, if we don't put in effort because you're scared of the failure, if you don't put in effort, if you're like, well, I think I'm going to fail at that, so I'm just not going to try. You know, there you actually do have control because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have a situation, you have a task, something you're supposed to do, and you're like, well, I don't think it's going to go well, so I'm just not even going to try. Well, then yes, you're going to fail at that. Because again, we control our effort, our action, our priorities, our time, what we control, what we put into a situation. But one of the things that we always have to come to deal with is what do we do with failure? Because underneath that wanting to control the uncontrollable, oftentimes that fear is a fear of failure. We don't want to lose. We don't want to fall apart. We don't want things to go poorly. And so what do we do with failure? What do you do when you don't do well at something? I mean, all of us probably have something like this. Like, I, uh, I, I did pretty well in school when I was a kid. And in fact, I was in a, in a small school. Um, there was 80 kids from kindergarten to grade eight. And so all the grade classrooms were mixed grade. So like in one classroom, it would be like uh, kindergarten to grade two or grade three, and then like grade three to grade five. And, and because I was doing well at some things, I was doing well in math, they actually moved me from the table of grade one students and put me with the grade three students. And I'm thinking, this is pretty cool. You know, I, I just skipped two grades in math. That's pretty awesome. Until the first test came. And see, the grade three math test was built on things that you would have learned in grade two, but I didn't do grade two math. I went straight from grade one to grade three. And I, so grade three, I was what, eight years old, seven years old, somewhere around there. I can still to my day, to this day, remember how I felt the moment the teacher put that test on the desk that said 32% at the top of it. I was eight years old. And I remember what that page looked like. It was in the top right corner. That moment of failure. Failure burns itself in our minds, doesn't it? I'm not the only one with that experience, I'm sure. You've had something like that. But So what do we do with it? You know, at eight years old, I cried. You know, I was upset. And then they, they moved me back to grade two math. And so I was like, hey, I'm still one grade ahead. You know, anyways. But that moment of failure, you know, it taught me a lesson. I don't want to fail at anything. I don't want to fail at everything. And so I'd push myself harder than what was necessary. And see, this can lead to all kinds of issues for us because think of it this way. Workaholism is the most rewarded addiction in our culture. Giving it 110% every single time until you push yourself to the edge of burnout, you know, your employer will reward you for doing that. And it all comes down to this fear of failure that drives it. So how do we learn what to do with failure? I want to take you to the Gospel of Luke. There's four accounts of Jesus' Jesus' life in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And they all tell kind of a different perspective, and they have very overlapping pieces. But this is one of the ones that Luke records. And in Luke 10, Jesus had this group of disciples. And usually we think of the 12 disciples, but there was actually a larger group uh, known as the 72 that were also there. So like the 12, we know their names. The next 60 of them, we don't really know their names. I guess they didn't do anything significant enough to get names recorded in Scripture, but, you know, they were there and they did something important. We're going to talk about that because what this group of 72 did is Jesus sent them out with a task. This is early on in his ministry, about one year into his three-year ministry, and Jesus sent these 72 out in pairs. And he gave them a list of commands. He told them, don't take resources with you. Just take your walking stick, take your clothes, and go. And when you enter a town, 
you know, rely on the hospitality of the people there and speak to them and teach them about Jesus. Teach, the, teach them about me. Teach them about God's kingdom coming. Pray for them. Heal the sick. You know, do these things that I have been doing that you've been watching. And so Jesus sends out these disciples. But the last bit of command he gives them is this. He tells them, here's what to do when you fail. Not if you fail, when you fail. If a town refuses to welcome you, go out to its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we have abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. This is what Jesus tells his disciples to do if they go into a town to talk about Jesus, to talk about the Messiah, to talk about the kingdom of God, to pray for them, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, all these pieces. And he says, but if they refuse you, wipe the dust of that town off your feet. Now that's a a Jewish kind of idiom, a phrase, and what it means, wiping the dust off, meant saying, I'm leaving to you to your fate, and we're carrying on. If you're going to reject the message we bring, that's okay. We're going to carry on. See, what this means is what Jesus is setting up his disciples that when you fail at this task, carry on. Don't give up. Now, we don't get, Luke didn't, you know, follow like one of these pairs and what they exactly did. And so we, we don't exactly know how it would have gone. But imagine that. You've been following Jesus for a year and then he sends you out in pairs and says, go to these towns and tell people about me you're going to be fearful. You're going to be worried. I mean, think about like the first day at a new job. You know, when you go in there and you're like, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what they're going to need of me. I don't know how this is going to pan out. You know, that amount of kind of fear of the unknown is normal. And so these disciples, as they would go into a town for the first time to tell people about Jesus, they would have been worried. And Jesus gives them this instruction in Luke 10 to say, if you fail, it's going to happen. Carry on. Go to the next town. And see, that's the problem with us is when we fail at something, we have this desire to feel like, oh, we're done. We should quit. How many of us have thought that we probably may have quit something when we were just one step away from it actually coming to fruition? You know, when you work at a project or work at a task or work at something and you're so close and you say, you know what, this is too hard. I'm giving in. Wouldn't it be awful to know how close you were from that thing succeeding? (laughs) Wouldn't you rather not know that maybe you quit one step behind success? See, Jesus was setting up his disciples to go and tell an important message. And he said, if you fail, carry on. If you fail, don't quit. If you fail, keep going. See, all of us have to learn how to deal with that fear of failure because it's a fear that's so common to being human. And later on, a little later in, verse, in Luke 10, the story skips ahead to when the, the 72 disciples come back to Jesus. And they start telling Jesus, this is what happened. People were healed. People heard about you. They're excited and they're overjoyed. But they had to endure through difficult situations. They had to endure through failure to get to the joy of being able to tell Jesus, hey, that thing you sent us out to do, we got to do it. Isn't that cool? See, instead of trying to control the outcome, what we have to learn instead is self-control. Instead of trying to control how a situation will pan out, we have to learn how to control our own actions and our own response and how we'll handle the situation. 
We're going to come back to this one in a little bit. But the second cause of worry. So the first one is often we try to control the uncontrollable, and often that masks uh, a fear of failure. And the second piece is a feeling of insecurity. And when we talk about feelings of insecurity, sometimes that's insecurities around our abilities. But most of the time, when we're insecure about something, it's about our identity. It's because we are worried about how, our, how a situation will pan out and how that will reveal who we are as a person. In fact, there's this thing that uh, psychologists have, have classified called imposter syndrome. And it's this constant running narrative in our minds of saying, someday, what if they realize I don't know what I'm doing? Like, how many of you have been in a job where, you know, like, the, the skill requirement was here and the educational requirement was here, and you were just kind of like right there, but you got the job anyways. And then you're wondering, how long until people realize there's a gap? How long until people realize that I don't actually know what I'm doing? I talked last week uh, about I had a brief stint selling cell phones for a while. And the first, like, the first week is like kind of training, like you're shadowing someone as they're making sales. And then one day, uh, Travis, my manager, says to me, so the next customer that comes in, you're approaching them, you're helping them, I'm not your safety net, you're on your own. <sighs> I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Because there's a gap. I don't know how to be a salesman. I've only been doing this for a week. And so this guy comes in, and it was the easiest sale I ever made the whole time I was there. The guy walked in, he says, I want this, I want that warranty, I want the extended warranty, which I'm like, sweet, that's a bonus in my pocket. It, it worked out. But I was so worried about this, I'm here, and the job needs to be me to be here, I have this insecurity piece. And those insecurity pieces make us worry. And so I was nervous when I approached the guy and said, hey, can, can, can I help you? The guy's like, yeah, this is what I want. I'm like, oh, sweet. Didn't even have to convince you on anything, didn't have to teach anything. It was awesome. Anyways, early first win, it was kind of cool. But part of this whole thing, part of this imposter syndrome there's, there's a deeper question under it sometimes. And, and if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes we've thought this. If they really knew me for who I am, they wouldn't like me. Or if they really knew me for who I am, they wouldn't love me anymore. And we judge ourselves by our deepest failures. And we think, you know, if they knew I failed that math test with a 32%, they wouldn't want me to be their pastor. You know, those thoughts get in our minds, don't they? And those are pieces of insecurity. And so sometimes we try to base our identity on something. We try to say, well, what do I base my identity on to overcome this insecurity? And the thing is, there's lots of good things that we try to base our identity on that don't really pan out. A lot of us, you know, when you meet someone new, what are the questions? Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? So what do you do? You know, we ask people, what's your job? And that often is an indication that, you know, we in our, in our society, our Western civilization, we value jobs and careers highly. And also we feel that when someone says, oh, I work in this field, it's like, okay, we kind of know something about you based on kind of the type of person that would like that field. And so sometimes we base our identity on our jobs. But what happens when you get that layoff? What happens when things in your career don't pan out? What happens if there's an injury and you can't return to work? You know, that happened to me before I sold cell phones. I, used to, I designed houses before that, and I, I got into a dispute with my boss, and instead of working things out, they said, well, we can just terminate you and find someone else. And my whole identity at that point, I was like, well, I, I'm a draftsman. I design houses. It's kind of a cool career. I like doing this. I had to wrestle with who is Brian without this job. 
because my identity was rooted more in my job than I realized it was. And see, sometimes we, we root our identity on our circle of friends and we value ourselves by how many friends we have or, or maybe we even let social media dictate that for us and, and the number of likes we get on a photo we post or the number of comments makes us feel good and, and our phone dings and you pop it up and you see the notification, you're like, oh, that kind of felt good. That person liked what I said. Sometimes we base our identity on those friendship relationships and the problem with social media um, and it was a uh, uh, Stephen Furtick uh, said this, and I'm probably going to misquote him slightly. But when you compare yourself on social media, you're comparing your everyday life against someone else's highlight reel. Because we only post, tend to post the highlight reels on social media, and then we see that and we think, well, I don't have that person's life. I'm, I'm not the same as that. See, whenever we compare ourselves, we lose. Because we value other, we look at other people's highlight reels and we look at our own flaws. We look at our own insecurities. Or maybe our, our identity is found in our parenting and um, being a parent to kids and you think that your kids' actions is a, is a judgment call on who you are as a parent. We've all, come on, you guys have to, like, you, have to, you don't have to nod, but I know that's not just me. You know, like, it's cute when Olivia's up here all the time jumping, and I'm like, yeah, no one's paying attention. Budget Breakers workshop's coming up. Everyone's just looking at Olivia. It's okay. She's cute. But we base our identity on who we are as parents sometimes. And then here's the big what if. What happens when your kids move out? You know, those of you who are on the other end of the spectrum, who you've experienced the joy and the freedom of being empty nesters, I've talked with people, and I haven't, obviously I haven't experienced it myself, who've said, like, the kids moved out, and we looked at, at each other and said, well, now what? Because so much of their life was consumed by their identity was in their kids that when the kids flew the nest, well, now what? What's next? Or even this one that we think ought to be good at first, and that's marriage. If you're married, is your identity only found in your relationship with your spouse? Because we think that's a good thing. You know, we should view our spouse first as the most important earthly relationship we have. That is good. But the problem with it is if we don't have, if we're not secure in our own identity, it leads to codependency. And in a nutshell, codependency is when your emotional state is interlinked and entwined with another person's emotional state. It means if one of you has a good day at work and one of you has a bad day at work and you come home and you talk to each other, well, the person who had a good day, instantly now their day's ruined. They can't actually have that little bit of, you know, things went well because they're entwined with the other person's emotional state. Now, it's good to have empathy. It's good to have compassion. I'm not saying don't have those things to your spouse. Obviously not. But does your spouse's emotional state control your own? And does your emotional state control your spouse's emotional state? Because that's an issue. That means there's some pieces there that got to be worked out, that have to be discussed. And chances are a really good marriage counselor will be the cheapest investment you ever make in your own relationship. It'll be good for you. So what do you base your identity on if it's not these things? How do you find something bigger than yourself, something more secure than yourself to base your identity on? It's kind of funny. Jesus said some things about that. Wouldn't you know? Early on in his ministry at the Sermon on the Mount, so this was before he sent out the 72 we talked about before, Jesus said this during the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking about things that worries. He said, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Does worrying make you live longer? No. In fact, all the science and the research says that worrying will make you live shorter. 
Because what's going on mentally affects us physically. It's just the way God made us. Jesus says, he goes on, we're going to skip ahead a couple verses. 6.33 says, So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So there's something in this verse we're going to unpack a bit. Jesus is telling people, if you want to defeat worry, you need to seek the kingdom. You need to find your identity based in something bigger than yourself. And Jesus says that thing is finding the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is this concept that Jesus taught about regularly, about saying the kingdom of God is God's presence living in us and with us and saturating our earth and our whole world actually being shaped by who God is. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And then there's this piece that says live righteously. We're not talking about self-righteous because self-righteous is an unbased sense of superiority. We're not talking about that. In fact, righteous means to live rightly, to live in ways that are good, to live in ways that are how God calls us to be. That's what living righteously is. And then there's this promise, and he will give you everything you need. Now, this is one of those verses that sometimes we don't like because we look at it and we say, he'll give us everything we need. Well, what what does that mean? See, do we trust that God will provide us what we need. Because oftentimes we worry about the things we don't have. Do we trust that God will give us everything we need? And, and unfortunately, there's, this, there's a strain of Christianity um, that I'm not going to go too deep into that's often called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth movement that says, you know, there are these promises in Scripture and we can just claim them straight up as they have to apply to us and God wants every follower to be healthy and wealthy. And we're going to talk a little bit later. We're going to come to a verse that kind of, kind of shows that that isn't really true. But the problem with it is, is even if, we're, if we don't want to take that route, we get scared of the promises that God actually does make because we don't want to lump ourselves in with people saying, well, I just want bigger and better for my sake. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with recognizing that we all have fears about having enough, about losing control, about finding our identity, And one of the things Jesus comes to is he says, you know, find your identity in seeking the kingdom, living righteously, and God will give you everything you need. We can't just remove that last phrase, even though we'd probably feel sometimes better about it. And so there I want to take us for a moment to James, because James gives some clarification on this. He says, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. So James is warning the church of saying, what is our motivation when we ask for something? So if we want to base our identity in who God is, are we asking him for that? If we want to base our, if we want to take our fears and we want to get rid of them, we want to come to a place of trusting God, we can ask God for that. But how do we know where our motives are? See, God knows what we need, but he still wants us to ask him. And do we trust God enough to ask him? In fact, if you're, if you're married, you've probably heard this joke before of, of the older couple that have been married for like 30, 40 some years and, and finally one day the wife speaks up and says, you know, you don't tell me that you love me anymore. And the husband goes, well, I, on, on November 18th, 1970, whatever, I, I told you I loved you when we got married and if it changes, I'll let you know. That's not a healthy relationship. Even though we know our spouses and our families love us, don't we still want to hear it? Don't we still like to hear those three words, I love you? 
It's the same thing with God. He knows what we need, but he still wants us to ask him. And when we ask him, we need to check our own motivations. We need to say, what is my motivation? How do we check that? Let's go back to Matthew. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. Are the things we're asking God for leading us in that direction of knowing the kingdom of God, of knowing who Jesus is, of moving towards that? See, we can ask God for the things he has for us. And in fact, Scripture tells us time and time again, we should ask him for the things that God wants to give us. And a lot of those things that God wants to give us are the things that will defeat fear and defeat worry in our life. This is why I said that trust is greater than worry, because there's this whole question of, do we trust God enough to give us the things that he promises he will give us? Do we trust God to shape our hearts and our motives to be who God wants us to be so that he can give us what he wants to give us for the sake of his kingdom and for the sake of us walking in a deeper relationship with him and for the sake of us being able to reveal God to our world. See, when we ask God for something and it's in service of that, of saying we want to grow closer to God, we want other people to know who God is, we want people to be able to experience the radical love and hope and joy and freedom of living with Jesus, those are pure motivations. That's what we're supposed to ask for. And when we see God at work, that's when we start to trust him. And trust defeats worry and insecurity when we see him at work. When we see God moving. So I want to take us to one last passage of scripture. Later on in the New Testament, there's Paul was, a, was an apostle and a church planter who came along after Jesus um, and had this profound encounter with the Holy Spirit that shaped his life. His, his whole career was persecuting the church. And then Jesus showed up and now Paul becomes the most well-known church planter. And he writes most of the letters that make up our New Testament. And Paul along the way met this guy named Timothy. And Timothy was kind of like a a protege of Paul. Paul mentored and discipled him and trained this guy, Timothy, to be his successor in many ways. And so they traveled together and they went through a lot of experiences together. And then the opportunity came for Paul to send Timothy off on his own. And so Timothy, at this point, is probably in his early 30s. He was about uh, 15 to 16 when he met Paul, maybe even a little younger, depending on, you know, we don't know the exact date, but we kind of guess at it. He was pretty young when he started walking with Paul. And then now he gets sent out to Ephesus and he's supposed to lead this group of churches. So there's letters in the Bible, um, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. Those were written to churches that Timothy was actually overseeing them. And so we don't have the letters that Timothy wrote to Paul. I wish we did. But from what Paul tells Timothy, we can infer the questions that Timothy was asking. And so Paul wrote a first letter we call 1 Timothy, and then you know Timothy would have replied to that, but we don't have that letter. But we have Paul's response to that letter. And this is how Paul starts this letter to Timothy. He says, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. See, when we read this, Timothy was afraid. Timothy was insecure. Timothy was fearful. And Paul's reminding him, God didn't give you a spirit of fear and timidity. He gave us a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. Why? 
Because it's what Paul says next. Never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. Now, we like to avoid suffering. You know, we all try to avoid suffering. We all want comfort. We all want to get away from that. But God actually calls us to suffer. Of saying, there will be trials, there will be things that make us suffer, there will be things that we don't like, there will be unpleasant experiences we go through for the sake of something greater. See, this is what that whole prosperity gospel and health and wealth doesn't know what to do with. Because they say, if we follow God, everyone should be healthy and wealthy and everything should be wonderful. But scripture actually says the opposite. If we follow God, our lives are going to be harder. But as we follow God and walk with him, there is the peace and the hope and the joy of being in a deeper walk with God that outweighs all the suffering, that outweighs all the trials, that outweighs everything else. And Paul continues on. He says, For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. When he says show us his grace, he means for us to be in a relationship with God, for us to have the free gift of grace because of what Jesus did for us. And now, God has made all of this plan all of this plain to us by the appearance, appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. See, Paul started with telling Timothy, don't be fearful, don't be timid. Why? Because this is all part of what God is doing. See, if you want to defeat worry in your life, do you trust that God will do what he says he will do? And in the midst of that, do you trust that God will give you the things that he promises to give to you? Because too often we don't have because we don't ask. This is something that I've wrestled with a lot of times in my life of realizing there's things that God has for us that we just don't ask for. And we say, God, shouldn't there be more in this? Shouldn't there be a deeper relationship with you? Shouldn't there be something more? And often it's just because it's as simple as that. We didn't ask. We didn't check our motivations. We didn't lean into this. And so I want to close our service with a few of these promises and I want to invite you to pray with me. See, a few of these promises that God makes is that he will be close to the brokenhearted. This week we, we buried my uncle who passed away way too soon of, a, of an awful, horrible disease. And this verse that God is close to the brokenhearted has been with me this week. Because we're experiencing that and our family is grieving over the loss of my uncle. But here's the promise. God is close to the brokenhearted. Romans 8, 38 and 39 talks about all the situations that prove that God will never leave us or abandon us. That when we feel alone, when we feel God is distant, that's just our perception. The truth is God is with us in every situation. And we have to ask so that we'll see him. And then we get to some really cool ones. Jesus promised that when he went to the Father that he would send the Holy Spirit to live with us and within us. We can have God's Spirit living in us if we ask. It's one of God's promises that's probably the most pivotal promise of the whole New Testament. What our faith is based on is the Holy Spirit being made available to us if we ask. Why? To empower us for ministry. None of the gifts that God has for us are just for us. 
In fact, the gifts are only from God if they're for benefiting others. And that's the, that's the difficult, toughest part of this, is every gift that God has for us is not for our own sake. It's for the sake of others. And so we can ask God to provide for our needs. If you're facing a financial need, if you're facing, you know, maybe it's a relational need, maybe there's a situation where you need wisdom, oh, that's one I should have put on the list. How many times God promises that he will give us wisdom when we ask. But what's the motivation? If we want it just for ourselves to make our lives more comfortable, God's not going to answer that. You know, and I've joked before, you know, God, wouldn't it be nice to have a red Ferrari? Not going to happen. But here's the thing. You can pray for God's blessings when our motivations are in line. And so here's the question I want to ask that we're going to end with. When you face the unknown, will you worry in fear? Or will you trust God and ask him for the gifts he has for us? Do we as a church ask God to pour out his spirit upon us so that we can be a light on the hill and reach our city? Is that a prayer that we are praying often enough? Are we praying that we will be aligned in who God is and what he's calling us to as a community of faith so that we will walk together and achieve more? Are you willing to pray and ask God for what he has for you? Now, if you've been following along on the YouVersion event, I put six questions at the end. And, and normally we do a conversation piece where I ask these questions and we discuss them together. But as I was writing these questions, I realized that no one actually wants to talk about these questions out loud because they're personal and they're introspective questions. And so this is what I want to ask you to do. If you're on the YouVersion event or we're going we're gonna to post them probably on our Facebook or maybe we'll send out an email, something like that. We'll figure it out on Monday. I want you to wrestle through what does it mean to trust God and ask him for what he has for us. And so if that's a question that you want to, I want to ask you to just close your eyes and you don't have to stand up or raise your hands. I just want to ask you to just, just on your lap, just put your hands open, palms up to say, God, we want to receive and pray with me. God, you know us to our core. You know our hearts. You know our motivations. And even as we sit here, we know the times when our motivations have not been pure. When maybe they were of good intention, but they were not in step with your heart. And so, Lord, as a community of faith, and for each one of us individually, who are praying this today, Lord, would you take these impure motivations we have and would you replace them with your motivations? Would you take our hearts that are often hard and rebellious and would you replace them with a tender, soft heart that responds to your voice? And Lord, we pray that you would give us the fullness of what you have for us. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit. You would give us the gifts that come with your Holy Spirit so that we would be a light on the hill, so that we can walk with one another and encourage each other to give courage that comes from you to the brokenhearted. That we would give assurance to those who feel alone that they are not alone, that we are there with them and you are there in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our sorrow, that you are here. Lord, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you pour out your Spirit on us that we would be empowered to serve? Would you call us to use the gifts that you have given us 
the gifts that we have that we don't use or, or the gifts that we haven't discovered yet, that we as a community of faith would live in the fullness of your promises, would live in the fullness of what you have for us so that we may grow deeper, but ultimately so that our neighborhoods, our families, our community, our city would be transformed by you. That is our prayer, Lord. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you to um, look at those six questions on the YouVersion event, uh, or we'll post them on our Facebook. We'll, we'll make them available, or, or you can always email us if you, if you miss it somehow. You can get in contact with us. Um, or maybe if you're in a small group. I know that our small groups are working through a Circle Up course that's awesome, but maybe there's some questions there that, that you want to wrestle with with your small group. And next Sunday... I want to invite you to be back here as we're going to be wrapping up this series, talking about one of the ones that is, is really core to our hearts, one of the character traits that we all have to wrestle with. And so I want to invite you to be here next Sunday, 11 o'clock as always. And folks, I hope you have a great week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.